Ephesians chapter 3. Um, today it's going to be a little bit theological. Uh, it's just the passage that we happen to be in. And I, uh, so hang with me. It's a little didactic, which means kind of a, a teaching, a little more academic in some areas. But uh, it's, it's an important part of where we just happen to land today in Ephesians. We're studying through the book of Ephesians. We come to this last chapter. Uh, it's a great section of truth. It's focusing. Uh, we're, 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 uh, it's really the last section, the last chapter of the first part of Ephesians that focuses on a lot of theological dynamics that are really critical for setting the stage for how to live for Christ practically throughout the course of our lives. It's all about the message of grace and what Jesus Christ has done for us. And I want to jump right in here and um, get in with uh, the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 3 verse 1 says this, For this reason, what's the reason? He's referring back to chapters 1 and 2. For this reason, because of what Christ has done, he's come, he's broken down the wall of partition. He has now made both groups, who? Jews and Gentiles, into one family. Uh, Pastor Blake did a great job of talking about it a, 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 two weeks ago, about how God brought people together into one family, into one dwelling place. The reason that happened was because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, breaking down the wall of division. So for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul was the messenger of grace, the messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news to the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? Anybody that wasn't a Jew. Turn to the person next tile and call him a Gentile. You're a Gentile. Okay? So this message is really for us. Paul is... Paul is going to, he continues to unpack this great truth that this is a message for now and for all. The message of grace with Jesus Christ is not no longer for a nation, for the Jews, but it is a revolutionary statement of inclusion that because of the cross, everybody can come as one. Paul is saying now, because this message that I'm preaching, guess what? Well, I'm in prison. I'm in prison because I am preaching this radical message about Jesus Christ that is inclusive of all humanity. See, the Jews, because they were God's chosen nation, noted, started in the book of Genesis. Well, guess what? They thought that they were kind of the, you know, the upper echelon. And they would have never thought that a Jewish person, excuse me, that a Gentile person could come in and receive all of the blessings of God without becoming a Jew or without proselyting to become a Jew. And even if they did that, if they weren't really a Jew, they couldn't receive all the benefits. But Paul's saying, no, 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 no. I'm a prisoner because I'm preaching this message now. Because see, the Jewish people didn't like it. They didn't, they didn't understand it. The theologians of that day attacked him because he said, no, grace is for all. And so he says, now I'm, I'm in jail because of what I'm saying. Now, I want you to notice Paul's perspective on his place. He doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Rome. He doesn't say, I'm chained to Roman guards. He doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Nero. He doesn't say, I'm stuck. I'm bummed out in this dungeon of distress. He says, I, Paul, am the prisoner, not for, but of Jesus Christ. 
See, Rome didn't have him. Truly, he had Rome. If you remember when we did our study through the book of Philippians, he also was in jail, and he talked about being chained to the guards. And he says, because I'm in chains, the gospel's being spread, not only in this little place that I am, but all the way to the Praetorian Guard, up the echelon. It's getting in, it's infiltrating, this dangerous message is infiltrating up into the upper echelons of the, of the Roman government. And d- don't you think the same thing is probably happening here? Can you imagine being a guard getting, you know, maybe a six-hour shift chained to him? Okay, okay, yeah, well, gospel of Jesus Christ, so he had grace of God, you know. I bet he just preached his little guts out there and just, just kind of unpacked it for him. I think there's a great perspective here that we want to pick up as Christ followers like Paul. You and I are chained to a lot of difficult situations and circumstances in our life, aren't we? But we don't have to be captive to them. Paul's going to go on to say that he is so free, he has great confidence, even though, quote, he is a prisoner. See, that's how we should live, loved ones. Proverbs 4, verse 18 says this, that the path of the righteous is like the dawn of the new day that grows brighter and brighter till noon. It's the idea that because as we're walking on this path, on this journey with God, as we walk, it's just like our path gets brighter and brighter. How many Christ followers do you know that really live that way? Where their life, because of everything they're going through, the good, the bad, and the difficult, it gets better and better. But that's what Paul is saying. That's what happens with me. I'm not going to be a prisoner of circumstances. I am in Jesus, walking with him. He goes before me, and he's going to make all things work together for good. And I'm not going to be captive to anything. See, loved ones, this is what we have to never forget. There will, there, we, there, there will always be conflict in our lives. Just go, okay. There's going to be conflict in your life because of who you are, just because you follow Jesus. There's going to be an enemy that's going to attack you. There's going to be people around you that are going to make fun of you, disagree with you. That's just part parcel that's going to happen. And that isn't even just life in general, the life stuff that goes on all around you. You're going to have to deal with. But Paul gives us a wonderful perspective. With all the stuff going around me in this world, I cannot expect peace and calmness all around my life. But I can like Paul, expect to grow in peace within my life. Have you noticed that? That's when you really begin to see yourself grow in Jesus Christ because you're not as affected by everything around you because of this peace and the life of Jesus inside of you. See, life's about perspective. Somebody said this, attitudes are contagious. Make yours worth catching. What do people see when you go to work tomorrow? Complainer? A whiner? A belligerent person? Someone that's always half, the glass is half full, nothing's ever right, everything's bad? Oh boy, they're a Creeksider. Who want to go there? See if everybody else is the same way. See, loved ones, you don't have to be captive to anything but Jesus Christ. And this is important 
because it's critical to see that God is overseeing your life. He may not overrule some of your circumstances, but he will always oversee and walk with you. When you complain, bemoan, and bellyache, in, in, in a sense, you're really complaining about what God is doing in your life. Paul says there in verse 13, notice what he says. If you skip down, it says, So then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are for your glory. Can you imagine if we lived our lives that way, friends? Where we realize that everything that goes on in our life, sometimes it's because of our bad decisions, sometimes it's just life happening, but we realize that people around us are watching, and we can say, you know something? I'm going to get through this because I'm going to be able to show these people what Jesus Christ is really like and how he is living in and through me in those situations and circumstances. And then pretty soon people go, whoa, whoa. Did you see him get through that? Did you see her go through that? And they were still pleasant and peaceful. That's what Paul's saying. Well, then verse 2, he says, Now you have heard, haven't you, about the administration. Some of your Bibles will say dispensation. You've heard, haven't you, about the administration or the dispensation of God's grace. Now, he gave it to me for you. Did you know that he gave it to me for you? Paul's saying, God gave me this because I'm the one now. He's the one that started to spread the message throughout the Gentiles. Before, it was a message mainly for the Jews. Now, he says, I'm I'm, I'm taking it to the Gentiles. Now, the mystery, we'll talk about this in a minute. The mystery was made known to me by revelation. He said, this is is heaven stuff, man. I didn't figure this out. I didn't dig for it. God gave it to me. And I have, as I have briefly written above, which was before this. Now, by reading this, you are able to understand my insight about the mystery of the Messiah. This was not made known to people in other generations that it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit of God. He's saying for all these years, for these centuries, nobody understood what's taking place now. But I'm telling you, I'm revealing it because it's been revealed to me. Now catch that. This is a big dog. He's getting, the, he's getting stuff hot from the heavenly press. He says the Gentiles are co-heirs. This is the mystery. Gentiles, which is everybody that's not a Jew, are co-heirs, members of the same body and partners of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. Paul keeps coming back to this. This is what God's grace has done for me. Now, this mystery... It's revealed by the Spirit to the apostles and the prophets. It's infallible information. It's infallible inspiration about this glorious revelation that the prophets didn't fully understand in the Old Testament. Isaiah said this. He said that the light would come and there would be a light to the Gentiles. But the Jews never thought that they could come equal with with, with themselves. There was going to be, you know, you got the Jews, God's chosen people up here, and then all the other Gentiles would be down here. Paul says, no, this is the mystery. And there's two mysteries we're going to talk about. The first one is, is that it's, it's an inclusive message for all. Now, I, I want to give you some theology, okay? Hang with me for a few minutes. Um, I believe the Bible 
is set in this thing called dispensations, or as Paul uses in one translation here, administration or dispensations. There's a thing called dispensation theology. Scholars have broke down kind of the way that God works. It's like a, it, it, the, the idea has to do that there's this household that's run by God called the cosmos, the world, eternity. And he is dispensing and, and setting up and administrating affairs according to his will, and based on the various stages that come about of Revelation. Paul is saying, we're in a different dispensation of Revelation here. Now, these are important because there are categories of human history, the dispensations, this category here, and this category here, and this working in this time frame here, of how God works in and through history and humanity. Now, it's really important because some of you are Bible students and you love studying the Bible and studying theology, it's important that you don't take these dispensations and um, try and put God in such a box that he can't be God. Because a lot of times what, that's what people will do with this, quote, dispensation theology, is they say, okay, God has to work this way in this time frame and blah, 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 and then they put a box on it and they bow it up, put God in a box, bow it up, and that's how God has to stay. And I'm not going to do that, but these time frames and these eight different dispensations can help you understand kind of the, the ebb and flow of what God's doing and give you a better understanding of why some things happen in the times and in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. You see, as we see God work through humans and humanity and history, from the beginning of time, uh, I believe it's Psalm 19.1 says, the fool has said, there is no God. People say there is no God, or people say, I don't need God. Because you know what? We're humans. We've got all the answers. People will say things like this, since we're coming up on the election year. If I just get the right party in power, if we get the right man in the White House, we don't need a spiritual re revival. We just need a political revolution. Yeah. And can I tell you something? The church buys into that. Oh, some very much so, some kind of more subtle. But there's a lot of Christians that believe if we just get this party running the House, the Senate, and the White House, oh boy, whew, we're going to be good. Can I tell you something? No. And I know this is really holy ground for some, but it's not true. There's no, there's no person and there's no party that's going to be able to save our world. I'm sorry. The Bible tells us that. But we buy into believing that because of this platform with this party, they're going to do it. And hear me, I'm very committed to the, to the political process and to the, you know, voting and all that stuff. Don't, I'm not diminishing that part of it. But don't ever think, like so many think, that that's what's going to change our world. Uh-uh. Hasn't done it since the beginning of time. Other people go, well, you know, oh, if I just had better parents. Man, my, my par I got crazy parents. They're whacked. You know, I'm, I'm a victim. You know? They would have got me Nikes instead of, you know, Converse. Oh, I don't know, just a lot better life. Or if they wouldn't have beat me, if they wouldn't have done this. And, and listen, and I understand that there are things that happen in our lives that affect us. Absolutely. But that's not the answer either. Because there's a lot of people that come from bad homes that are doing great, and a lot of people that come from good homes that are doing really badly. Some people say, oh, if we just had a better environment. Oh, boy. You know what? If we just had, you know, a little more green, took care of the environment, a little more perfect oh, we'd all get along in peace and harmony. No. Or if we could just see God and hear from God, not have to depend on this faith where we can't see, feel, touch, hear. It would all be so much better. 
Do any of these arguments sound familiar? That's how people think. But I think God in these dispensations, he says, let me, let me kind of give you some other insight and understanding to it. So let me just kind of give you these really quickly. Uh, the first dispensation is the beginning of creation, the dispensation of innocence. It starts with creation and it ends at the fall. Genesis 1 through 3. Now, what is this dispensation kind of answering? Well, that one about parents. I didn't have such lousy parents. Oh, really? Did you know that Adam and Eve were perfect? They were created perfectly. They were totally healthy. They had the most perfect environment. There was no dysfunctional idiot parents around them. They had the perfect father. They had it made in the shade in the perfect garden. Think about this. They could run around naked and just, you know, do whatever. And nobody cared. Nobody was ashamed. But what happened? In the midst of all this perfection, purity, and innocence... They still rebelled against God, the perfect father. See, this dispensation shows mankind what can happen even with a perfect family, perfect upbringing, perfect environment. Guess what? It's what Paul says in chapter 2. We are all sinners. We all need the grace of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, there's a, uh, in, in uh, Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, God's people for so many years, they had this proverb, an axiom. They used to say this, the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. The idea is that when you eat sour grapes, what happens? You go, mm, you know, and it's just really gross. Well, that proverb, what, the reason the Jewish people would say it is, is what they were really saying is, is because my parents were bad, my life is bad. So you know what God said in Ezekiel chapter 18? He said this, what do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? And he quotes the proverb and he says, uh, the, the proverb, the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are on age. And he basically says this, no more. You know why? Because he says, I'm tired of you blaming your parents for the rebellion and the mess and the crud that you're in. Be responsible. You're accountable to God. God says, you're not going to use that anymore. Now, listen, I understand, loved ones, we're imprinted by our parents, but ultimately, we've got to take responsibility and be accountable before God. It doesn't matter how good we have it or how bad we have it, the age of innocence shows you we still need God. The second dispensation is the dispensation of conscience. This started after the fall, beginning in Genesis 4, and went for about 1,600 years to Noah's time, to the flood. The idea there was, okay, well, innocence is gone, so let's just do this as humanity. Let's just kind of, let's just go with our conscience. Everyone do their own thing. You do what's right for you. I'll do what's right for me, and oh, life is good. Won't that work out well? Right. One of the most debauched times in the history of humanity. If you read Genesis in that short span of 1,600 years, it was one of the most debauched times, one of the most violent times, one of the most sexually aberration times that we've ever seen. It was sick. It got so bad, it said God looked down and he said, that's it, I'm going to destroy it. And that's what he does. It was so perverted. He destroys everything except he saw one man with one family that walked in righteousness, Noah, and he used them to preserve humanity. So what do we see? Well, innocence, perfection isn't the answer. 
do your own thing, with, live out your own conscience isn't the answer. So the next dispensation was the dispensation of government. We see this uh, uh, after the flood until the Tower of Babel in Genesis uh, the, the first half of Genesis as well. It lasted about 400 years. So God, what does he do? After the, ta- after the, after the flood, he comes and he sets up this family. They reproduce, recreate uh, humanity. And now God says, okay, I'm going to give you some governmental rules that you are going to administrate. There's going to be capital punishment and other things that you're going to do. Who oversaw that? Well, people did. What happened? God just as bad. Someone killed someone, then somebody would, their life would have to be taken as well. And everything was governed by people. So they started this, what these people then is they said, well, let's make a name for ourselves. We're, we're really something. Let's build a tower to God. And God says, I can't have that. And so these people rebelled, they got divided, and God spread them out. And so we see again that government doesn't answer the questions, doesn't answer the problems, doesn't answer the issues. God says, see, that's not the answer. So we get to the fourth dispensation, the dispensation of promise. This starts with the end of Tower of Babel to Abraham comes on the scene, who's called the father of our faith, Romans chapter 4. And it says that he, that this nation, this dispensation goes from Abraham until the exodus that lasted about 430 years. People say, if I just had a promise or a vision from God, oh, I'd be so successful, I'd have direction. Abraham received a promise. God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. I mean, it's going to be like a sand. You're not going to be able to count them. And he was talking about not only the Jewish nation, but then ultimately you and I are part of that, that nation that would be innumerable to count. What do we see? Well, his descendants ended up in Egypt for what? 400 years, baking bricks, building buildings in the blistering sun for a pharaoh. See, promises aren't going to save us. So then we have the next dispensation, the dispensation of the law. What happens is, is they're in slavery for 400 years. God gives them a promise and says, now I'm going to bring you back out. They're released from slavery. And this lasts from the book of Exodus, uh, from the time they left Egypt until the cross of Calvary, some 1,500 years. What does this dispensation say? Well, if we just have rules, if we just have regulations, if we just have boundaries, borders, and guidelines, and everything will be okay. Do you know people who think that, there's a lot of people who think, okay, if I just get this one book, it's going to change my life. If I get this one key to life, it's going to change my life. Or if I do this one discipline, it's going to change my life. But it never does. Hey, the law was a pretty good, it was wonderfully sensible and remarkably practical. But you know what we find out? Man can't keep it. As a matter of fact, Galatians tells us that the reason God gave us the law was because it would point us to Jesus Christ because we couldn't keep the law. Because some people, there's a few disciplined people that can keep it. I mean, listen, just think about it this morning. How many of you probably rode here to church without a seatbelt on? How many of you sped here this morning? See, we can't even keep the, the basic easy laws, let alone God's laws. And these laws simply point us again 
to the dispensation that we're in now. This is the sixth one, the dispensation of grace. That's what Paul is talking about here in verse 2. Since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we entered into this dispensation of grace because we understood that innocence and conscience and government and promise and rules and regulations couldn't save us. People say they want to see God. Just show me God. He came. We saw him. 1 John chapter 1 says we beheld him. Our eyes saw him. A whole culture got to experience him. And still people don't believe. He conquered death and sin and brought a new reign of life called grace. But people still don't believe. God says, see? It's all about the human heart. Now, this dispensation of grace, and this is where you've heard me say this before and some of you disagree with me, and that's fine. But, see, some people say, you'll hear it on TV all the time. Let's say some major thing, an earthquake happens in New Orleans. Oh, you know why? That's because of that sin-soaked city, you know? God's just judging them. Or if some family, some tragedy happens to a family. Oh, that's God judging them. Can I tell you what? We're in the dispensation of grace not judgment. Our sin is what finds us out and judges us now. Jeremiah 2, Numbers 32. God didn't come, Jesus Christ, John 3, 16 and 17, didn't come to condemn us, but to give us grace and to give us life. It's our sin that causes the problems. Because why? We're in the dispensation of grace. And this dispensation is simply Jesus a God coming to us through Jesus Christ and saying, I love you, I died for you, and I rose again. If you will confess your need for me with your mouth and believe in your heart, Romans 10, 9, and 10, you can be saved and experience this grace that is open to all. Paul says, that's the message I'm preaching right now. You and I are in the dispensation of grace. The last two, these are future. The next one is going to be called the dispensation of tribulation. This is what you, you can read about this in Revelation chapter 6, verses 19, through ni- uh, chapter 6, verse uh, through chapter 19. This is, when, this is when hell hits the earth, big time. It's called the tribulation. It's that seven-year period where life is going to be tough. People mock it. People sneer about it. People don't believe it's going to happen, and they doubt it. That's okay. God says, I'm going to show you some cataclysmic things you have never, ever seen. Matter of fact, it's going to be so bad. Revelation 6.16 says it's going to be so bad, bad that people are going to literally cry out to the heavens and say, let a rock fall on me. Instead of calling out to God, to the rock of ages and saying, Jesus, would you save me through this? It's going to be ugly. It's going to be awful. And that is when, hear me, that's when the judgment of Jesus Christ comes. Revelation 19. That's the next dispensation that we head into. Don't know when, but it's, it's coming. And then the last dispensation is the dispensation of righteousness. After the tribulation, after the earth is judged, God's going to set up this rule and millennium reign of a thousand years where it's going to be perfect again. It's kind of like the Garden of Eden revisited. Part no. And, and, and Isaiah says it's where the lion and the lamb are going to sleep together. It's where there's going to be peace all over and everything's going to be perfect. But guess what? Satan's going to be loose for a season, and then guess what happens? There's going to be, get this, perfect conditions, another rebellion against God. 
And then at the end of that, then the, then the end comes and God starts over. And see, what this whole thing does, it really nullifies this B.F. Skinner psychology that if you just give people the right environment with good people, everything will work out. That's not true. Why? Because we all have to deal with sin. Understanding these dispensations, friends, is important because as you read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, this will help you understand and see God at work in humanity and through history and revealing himself for what he's doing. So that when Paul comes, he says, now, this is the mystery. This is what I want to share with you, the message of Jesus Christ who comes in grace and truth. So verses 1 through 6 here, Paul shows us that we are all gen- that we are Gentiles and anyone not of the Jewish nationality can still come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he's been commissioned by God to speak forth that message. So we are here today because of what started with Paul here in Ephesians. And then we'll see here in chapter, uh, in verse 12, uh, 7 through 12, the mystery, we're going to talk about the mystery now, that is something unknown or hidden. It's, uh, it's a secret, but it's an unveiled at the right time in God's dispensation. And this is the secret here. It is not a national Messiah for a nation. It is a universal Savior for the world. That is the concise message of Paul verses 7 through 12. Now listen, look at verse 7 here. It says, I was made a servant. You might want to underline that. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. Verse 8 says this, for his grace was given to me the least of all saints to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of the Messiah and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages The mystery was hidden for ages in God who created all things. Why? This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church. Who's going to make known this mystery? You and I. The church, Sunday through Saturday. We're going to make it known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavens, angelic beings. This is according to the purpose of the ages which he made in the Messiah Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness, access, and confidence through faith in him. Underscore that. That's important. I want you to see how Paul sees himself here. He starts as a prisoner. He says his first words, I, a prisoner. Now he calls himself a servant. He's someone who simply serves, and he says, my job now, while I'm a prisoner, whatever I do, is to serve the Gentiles and communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's got a powerful perspective here. Have you ever noticed how, as we get older, some of us, maybe, um, and, and whether it's parenting or our business or our life, we kind of, you know, we kind of elevate ourselves. We get some experience. We kind of have some success. We do something for a while, and we begin to say, yeah, I'm pretty skilled. And, and we kind of go, okay, I'm up here, and others are down here. Yeah, there's some people above me. But did you ever do that? Paul doesn't do that here. Paul 
He understands that everything about his life at this point now is because of God's grace upon him. He says this, God has given me this gift of grace. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about a grace, a favor that says, Paul, you're going to go speak to the Gentiles. You're going to communicate this message to them. And he doesn't see it like, <laughs> look at me. I can preach like crazy. He says, oh, it's all about God. It's all about his grace. Nothing that I've done. This is something that I want to make sure I'm learning and growing in. As Paul grew in grace, he didn't see his life going up and to the right. He saw his life going down. What do you mean? His estimation of himself got less as he became greater. Listen to this. In AD 55, the year 55, he wrote 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, he said this, I am the least of all the apostles. He says, I'm part of God's brain trust, his dream team to carry out the mission. But I'm the least of the, the big dogs. And then in AD 60, five years later, he writes this book, Ephesians, and this is what he says here. I am the least of all of God's people. So now he's not, I'm not just, this, I'm not just the worst of, you know, the, the leadership team. Now I'm the worst of God's people. I'm at the bottom rung. I'm looking up at everybody. And then you go four years later, AD 64, 1 Timothy 1, he says this, so that in me, I am the worst of sinners. Can you imagine that? And this guy's, I'm the worst. That's amazing to me. Because most Christians, we start to see ourselves as getting better and better and better and better. And we forget this important thing that we're still sinners saved by grace. Now, you've got to see what Paul's doing here because in these first few verses, he's basically saying, I am part of an elite group. Remember what he said that the prophets of old never got this mystery? But I did. He's saying, I am getting words and revelation and teaching from God that nobody else has gotten. And I'm giving it to you. Listen, that's pretty heady stuff, friends. But then a few verses later, he says this. I'm the least. <laughs> and I think that's a powerful dichotomy for us to live in. I'm the least. Unpack that for a moment. He's not robbing banks. He's not killing people. He's not ripping off money. But you've got to know that there's something inside of him that understands the grace of God. And that he really knows what God has done for him. And that he hasn't arrived. He's got some spots. He doesn't say what it is, but it's not the biggies. But it's probably those things in his life, like so many of us. It's the thoughts. It's the ambitions. It's the, the grudges that we hold, the bitterness that we allow to seep into our soul. It's the things that are oftentimes unseen. Most of you know we were flooded out of our house almost a year ago, and so we got all this new stuff. And we used to have this Berber carpet that was kind of white, but it had all these browns and 
uh, some blacks and flex in it, you know. Uh, I, I'm just, I'm kind of sloppy. And um, so when I spill on it, you know, I just kind of, uh, just another spot. And um, try and clean it up usually. But now we've got this beige carpet in there. And I mean, it's, you know, there's no specks, there's no nothing. And uh, one day I was, I, I just always walked through the house with food and drink and I spilled something. Um, and, you know, I really tried hard to get it out and I couldn't. And it was over by our ottoman in front of one of the things. So I just kind of slid the ottoman over and forgot about telling, <laughs> forgot about telling Trina. Well, it was probably, I don't know, a week or two, a few weeks later. She moves it. And all of a sudden, she sees this spot. And she looks at me. I go, what? To the spot, did you do that? I said, Isaac. And uh, my grandson. And, uh, and, and I, I didn't really lie, but I tried to be silent for a minute. Maybe she would think it was Isaac. But, you know, it's amazing. She went and she was able to get the stain out. And I thought, you know, that's kind of how my life is. That's how your life is. That's how our life should be. We should begin, those little stains should become more prevalent in our lives. And where we don't want to hide them anymore. But we say, Lord, I want you to come and clean and remove them. Because you know what? You've been so gracious and so good to me. And I just, I, I, I just want to be holy and pure before you. That's a great mark of humility. Because the church gets filled with people who forget that they are sinners saved by grace. And instead of reminding ourselves, I'm not wallowing in it and being, you know, I'm so bad, but just never forgetting to keep us at a place of humility, we become very prideful because, wow, look at me. Paul never does that. He becomes downwardly mobile spiritually. And he's not writing a book here, Humility and How I Achieved It. He's just sharing this amazing gift, but a dichotomy, because the greatest people that will be used of God, loved ones, are those who they have great confidence and great boldness, and they'll take on hell and the devil with a squirt gun, but in the process, they will walk around people and have great humility. And Paul comes to this understanding that everything that he's able to do, speak with boldness, share revelation, it's all because of the grace of God. It's nothing about himself. Romans 12.3 says this, For by the grace given me, I say to each one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has given to each one of you. Somebody said humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. And that's what Paul does. He understands everything that he's become is because of Jesus Christ. Paul's position grew lower, grew lower against the backdrop of the grandeur of God's grace. And can I say that's the way I, I want our church to be? That's the way I want us to be. We just become less because he's so much more. Verse 9 says this, so we get ready to finish up here. And I come to shed 
light for all about the administration, the dispensation of the mystery that was hidden for ages in God who created all things. What's the mystery here? The first mystery he talks about really has to do with it. It's a message that is inclusive, Jew and Gentile, humanity. The mystery here now is Colossians 1.27, where it says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the ultimate mystery that they couldn't get. And now Paul says, this is the mystery that we get to receive. It's open for all. And get this, you get to live with the understanding that Christ now lives in you. It happens through a miracle of grace. And he says, I want to preach this, and I want the light to go on every time I preach it. I want people to understand that now it's all about coming to Jesus and him living in him and through him. This is the proclamation, loved ones, of the church. That every one of us here, out there, Jesus can live within them and change their life and bring light to them, in them, and through them. And now because of his life in us, what does it say in verse 12? We can have boldness, access, and confidence uh, through faith in him to do what? To approach the Father. Verse 8, he says, the incalculable riches of the Messiah. I mean, you, you can't count it. It's so deep. It's so great. It's so grand. It's so unending. And this is so important. Not to give excuse, but to understand some of us may not have had a good earthly father. We come from difficult, dysfunctional home situation, things that scarred us, things that bent us. Some of us don't even know our own biological fathers. But Paul says we've got this king. We've got this Messiah who is so rich. It's, it, the picture is like a fairy tale, and he's going to bring you in, and you're going to be able to be royalty. And, and, and you're going to be able to access the king. But this is hard for a lot of us. We're so undeserving, aren't we? I was thinking about the little boy who tried to learn to play the cornet, sitting in the music room, the band room, and the teacher got so frustrated, started yelling at the little guy and threw the, uh, the, the music book down. Felt like a failure. Even as a little kid, fourth grade. I remember high school trying to impress you, you know, trying to kind of be impressive, you know. And I was a freshman, and because I played uh, sports and basketball, I got to have early um, uh, lunch. Well, the early lunch was really for the juniors and the seniors. And so one day, we had this uh, day of sunshine in Oregon, and uh, they had this courtyard, and they had these sliding doors. Uh, window doors. And um, uh, over here in this section over here was all the juniors and seniors sat and the window was right over here. Well, like I said, like, you know, one out of 300 days of sun. And the, 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 the sun was just coming through this, this window going out into the courtyard and somebody had cleaned the glass or something. And I just bought this big old thing of ice cream right here. And I'm eating, trying to be cool. And all of a sudden, boom! I walk right into this sliding glass. Now, you've got to understand there's, you know, there's ice cream all over the 
sliding glass door all over my front, and I got all these juniors and seniors over here just laughing their brains out. I graduated with a 2.21 high school. I didn't think I was smart enough to go to college. I come from a really pretty significantly dysfunctional family. Now, those are all kind of some funny stuff, but they're true about me. Everybody at your table could probably share your own stories, and they're not really that funny because they're true. We've all been marked with varying degrees and has brought into us levels of insecurity, places where we lack confidence, where we've had notable failures that make us suspicious and even questionable of our own abilities. Some of us have lived on a performance treadmill for so long and people put expectations on us and we just can't meet them. And you know what all this stuff does? It leads to a classic case of someone who will second guess themselves all the time. And that's why some, you really don't believe that God's incalculable riches will help you get to where you need to go because you're not worthy. But Paul is saying here, Jesus covers it all. And the life and flow of grace from his life will make up all the difference in our lives if we will simply live with him and walk with him. What does it mean for you today? This is what it means. It means whatever it takes to get you and me looking like God and for your life to be transformed into what God originally had in mind, in this dispensation of grace, he'll do it. And he will never run out of resources or patience or goods to fill the bill and to cover the cost of getting you where you need to go if you will simply submit to him and walk with him and be humble before him like Paul and see that everything happening in your life has purpose in this dispensation of your life to get you where you need to go. And that's a lot of theology. But for me, loved ones, that's a lot of hope. Amen.